I wasn't living, I was merely surviving. And I think I often had moments of feeling complete sadness for the person I'd lost, almost like I was grieving myself because I no longer was myself. My life now, you can't even compare it to what it was. I am so well and so healthy and I'm thriving and that's possible for everyone. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora. welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations. You're with Andy Dixon as I bring you another conversation with an awesomely ordinary person who is making a difference in the world. I just want to quickly take time to welcome in all those of you who are new to the podcast over the last few weeks. It feels like there are quite a few of you, so know my you are most welcome here, and I hope you find these conversations uplifting, challenging, and inspiring. Today's guest, Jen Mora, is a survivor. She has battled with obsessive-compulsive disorder and eating disorders, and is living a vibrant and happy life where she looks to help others who are fighting their own battles. Along with her good friend, Jazz Thornton, Jen founded Voices of Hope, a not-for-profit that advocates for and encourages those who are fighting to be mentally well. Please note that, given Jen's experience and work, during this episode there are references to a range of mental health struggles and traumas, including discussions around OCD, uh, eating disorders, hospitalisation and anxiety, and also the mention of suicide. If you need to hit pause or stop on this episode for your own well-being, please do that. And if you're in a place where seeking help would be beneficial, please talk to someone in your support network, or any of the agencies that I'll list in the show notes. That said, this is unsurprisingly a very hope-filled conversation. This is episode 46 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Jen Mora. Well, I'm here with Jen Mora. Thanks for joining me, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And how are you? I am good today. Um, we are currently in isolation as my partner has COVID, but I am feeling um, good, staying negative, and I'm um, really using this time to, I guess, just chill. It's good for me to take some time just to like be and relax and um, yeah, focus on what I can control as opposed to what I can't right now. Nice. Do I need to ask how are you really? How are you really? I know. Yeah. I know it's a bit like that, isn't it? No, but really, I am actually feeling really on top of things right now. So yeah, um, nice. yeah thank you for asking. And we'll, we'll get on to talking about that as one of your campaigns a bit later. But yes. um, for those who, who haven't heard of you, who don't know you, um, nor here queer, who are you? Where are you from? Well, my name is Jen, or Genevieve um, is my my full name, as my mum likes to call me, Um, and I am from Auckland, New Zealand. I've grown up here, um, I've always lived here, uh, and I am 27 years old, turning 28 this year, Um, and what do I consider myself? I am the co-founder of a mental health charity called Voices of Hope, which we'll end up talking about, I'm sure, further down the line, and I'm also recently um, appointed general manager of the organisation too. Um, I'm a lived experience advocate, so I've gone through my own battles with mental illness and now on a daily basis get to use my story to um, empower others through their fight which is a real privilege. Um, I'm the daughter of uh, my mum and dad Justin and Helga and then I have a sister Juliet so we're a small little family but I love my family and I wouldn't be here without them. But a growing family because you're engaged now? 
I am engaged. Yes, I recently got engaged to my partner, Isaac, and we've also recently got a dog. So we've got our own little fur baby. Um, but yes, we're, um, we're getting married next year. So it's very exciting. Awesome. What was life like for you growing up? Like when you think of your primary school years, you know, what, what was life like then? I um I often talk about my life growing up as um one that you know I was very lucky. Um, I grew up with um, a lot of privilege. I had um, two parents that worked really hard. My dad's an eye surgeon. My mum was a nurse. And, you know, I was very lucky to grow up in a family that really embraced um, or were able to um, afford to go on family holidays. Um, We spent a lot of time as a family. We're very, very close. My parents are still together. Um, I always felt completely loved and supported. um, And I have since the day I was born. And so, you know, I, I, um, I do feel very lucky for my upbringing I think on the outside um, or, or in many cases it was kind of the picture perfect life um, everything was was really really good um, when I was growing up my mum she has depression and so there are moments throughout my uh, childhood years where I remember my mum being in some really really low lows and I think at the time it perhaps didn't affect me as much as it has um, in the years that have followed looking back and, and being able to relate to a lot of what my mum went through um, but overall um, yeah life growing up was really good. I'm very tall. I'm taller than both my parents. And in primary school, I was always a giant in my class. Um, but yeah, my, my primary school or yeah, intermediate school years were really, really great. And at that stage, did you have any idea of what you wanted to be when you grew up? I always wanted to be a news presenter. So when you look back on, um, uh, my mum was really good at taking little family home videos, which I'm so grateful for now, but I wanted to be the centre of attention. I'd often like run up in front of the camera and I'd be like, I'm Jen reporting from TVNZ or like TV2 and you're watching the news and the weather today is blah, blah, blah. So I always wanted to be in front of the camera. Um, And so yeah, growing up news presenter was definitely, um, or a weather girl was definitely what I wanted to do. Do you still have aspirations to be in front of the camera? I have my moments. I actually went to drama school for two years. So like acting and um, I do a bit of modeling on the side, not so much anymore, but acting something I'm still super passionate about. Um, so, so yes, I would say I do. Not really a news or weather presenter anymore, but um, yeah, in front of the camera is something I still enjoy. So life was, life was good. And then how did that change for you as you um, went into your teens? Yeah. So, um, yeah, as I explained, you know, life growing up was really, really good. And I think on the outside, um, and, and as I said, it was, my life was almost picture perfect. Um, I had loving parents or have loving parents and a, an amazing little sister and a beautiful little dog growing up. Um, and I think everything, you know, everything went really well until it didn't. And so I remember around the age of 10 or 11 years old, um, walking into the kitchen one night and dad was cooking dinner and I walked in and I was like, Hey dad, what are you cooking for dinner? As I did most nights. Um, and I probably would still do if I was still living at home but now I have to fend for myself um and um when I walked into the kitchen he was watching the news and there was a really graphic news piece um that came on the screen and I just remember in that moment feeling this complete overwhelm um of, of anxiety and fear. Um, and that's kind of the moment I pinpointed as the beginning of my journey. So whether it was that incident that triggered things or whether I was an anxious child growing up, I'm not entirely sure. I imagine, you know, there were little parts of me that, that were a bit of a, a bit of a worrier. Um, but that's the moment that I really think my life changed. Um, I went to bed that night different than I'd ever gone to bed before um, in order to keep myself safe and in order to, um, I guess, try and stop what had happened in that new 
news piece happening to me, uh, I checked my room. So I checked under my bed and I checked behind my curtains and I checked, you know, my doors were locked and my windows were locked. And I did this little routine, as I called it this time, the checking routine. Um, and until I'd done that, I wasn't allowed to go to sleep. So that's kind of the moment that I that I look at as, you know, the beginning of my journey with, um, with uh, you know, mental health issues or um, when, when you say I wasn't allowed to go to sleep you mean in in your own mind you were in my mind yeah yeah, yeah, right. yeah there was this genuine fear that if I didn't check my room something terrible was going to happen and so I wasn't allowed in inverted commas or whatever you want to call it to go to sleep because my mind told me that you know if I went to sleep without checking my room I was going to be hurt so I had to do that and had to again was a feeling that I felt super strongly so was that something that was a once off for you or did it did that become a repetitive thing? What was that? Yeah, so it did become a repetitive thing. Um the way that I kind of explain it to people is, you know, the first night I had to do it once, this checking routine, and the second night it became twice and and so on. It became more and more, I guess, prevalent in my before bed routine, as I used to call it. So um, you know, most people can brush their teeth, have a shower, get into bed, whereas for me it ended up being about an hour of things I had to do before, again, I was allowed to go to sleep. So um, the more, I guess, attention I gave these rituals and behaviors or the more time I gave them, the more ingrained they did become Um, to the point that, you know, things like brushing my teeth, getting in the shower, getting dressed, all these, I guess, mundane, normal tasks became really complicated for me. Um, And that continued on uh, for many years to follow. And as it continued on, it became more and more ingrained. And it was around the age of, um, I want to say about 12, 13, where the words um, obsessive compulsive disorder were presented to me um, by a, a psychiatrist um, or psychologist. Um, I can't quite remember. But um, yeah, they said those words. And I think for me, there was this overwhelming um, sense of relief because I thought I was going completely crazy. And I thought, you know, what I was doing uh, was so abnormal and that I had lost the plot and that I was the only one in the world that couldn't just go to bed, you know, like every other person could in the world. So for me to hear those words, um, I guess, yeah, gave me um, a sense of relief, but also an understanding of what I was going through and made me feel a lot less alone in my fight. And it also gave me, I guess, some sense of hope that now we had something to work towards because we knew what it was now. And I mean, that sounds quite different from people to, who talk about like being in psychosis where they, they're thinking really strangely, but they think it's really normal. Yeah. You, you sound yeah. like you were behaving in a certain way, but then also able to look at that and go, that's not normal. Why 100%. am I doing this? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, there's nothing logical about um, about OCD, but, you know, when I've talked to other people that have um, gone through similar experiences to me, like, it's a really interesting discussion we have because I knew, I knew, like, Genevieve knew that opening and closing a door four times wasn't going to be the difference between life or death. Like, I knew that. I logically knew that that wasn't, you know, what was going to happen, but my brain told me that there was a slight possibility that something terrible could happen. And that slight possibility was enough for me to go, okay, I'll just do it four times and then move on with my day. Um, But as I said before, the more that you engage in these behaviors and these rituals, the more ingrained they become and the more difficult they end up being to stop. Um, So yeah, I was able to, in, in many cases, I guess, separate myself or look at myself and go, yeah, this is this is not normal again. Whatever normal is, um, but the the pull or the um, obsession or worry was so strong that it was just easier in those moments to to give in and to move on and do it. 
what was the journey with your parents like during this time? Because obviously like I'm a parent and looking, oh, I've got a 10 year old girl, you know, yeah. and looking at her and going, what if she was behaving like that? How would I feel? Mm-hmm. What would I do? You know, what was that journey like for you guys? I think, um, as I said, you know, my parents and I, we've always had a really close bond and and relationship. I think for them, because life growing up was so um, so easy, you know, I was such a happy kid. I was such a carefree kid. Um, you know, nothing had necessarily gone wrong. Uh, when they started to notice these behaviours in me, um, there was a lot of heartbreak and a lot of fear of the unknown um, and a lot of frustration. I think, you know, with the sleeping at night, um, my parents tried all different kinds of things. So I would literally spend hours of my night screaming in complete terror that something terrible was going to happen to me. And so we went through periods where my mum slept with me in the same room. My mum slept with me in the same bed. My parents, you know, moved their bed closer to my room so that they were next door they tried things like locking their door so I couldn't sleep into their um sneak into their room at night you know they tried all these different options I think they felt really lost and confused and I think and I don't want to put words in my dad's head but he's a doctor and he even as someone who was a doctor he he struggled to get his head around why his daughter was was dealing with this um and so I think yeah I think there was a lot of emotions for them um they knew pretty quickly that the their daughter being me had changed that something wasn't quite right and so I saw my first psychologist at the age of I think it was 11 years old um and unfortunately that didn't work out for me she just wasn't the right fit and and put a lot of blame on my mum which I think made it more difficult for me um and looking back was completely inappropriate because uh, my mum hadn't done anything to to cause this um but you know they they felt completely helpless seeing someone they loved struggling so much and that became even more prevalent as my journey um continued and my my issues around eating um became the next thing that I was you know to go through yeah so tell us about that what what happened in that stage Yeah. So for me, the way that I look at it, um, you know, anxiety was kind of my first little journey, um, which morphed somewhat into um, obsessive compulsive disorder the way. And again, this is just how my brain's processed in the past. You know, my anxiety was so awful. I looked at something or a way to, I guess, somewhat curb that anxiety. And that was engaging in these behaviors and these rituals. It was almost like a follow on effect. And then, you know, the OCD gave me a sense, a false sense of control for a short period of time, then that wasn't enough. And so I looked at other things in my life that I thought I could control without even realizing that I was doing this. Um, And, you know, very quickly, um, my my rituals or my behaviors became more focused around exercise and doing repetitive um, exercise and behaviors uh, around, you know, mealtimes as well. So it may be the certain, you know, when I sat down to eat, I had to, you know, take so many bites or I had to chew so many times or whatever it may have been. Um, and my obsessions very quickly became more focused around food and exercise. And, um, it was over the summer holidays between year 10 and 11, where things really, really went downhill. Um, my parents felt really helpless and I heard someone explain it recently and it really resonated with me. And I'm sure something my parents felt, um, how, how heartbreaking it is as a parent, not to be able to provide your child with one of life's most basic needs, food, you know, they, they could couldn't force me. They encouraged me. They sat down with me. They told me I couldn't leave the table until I ate my meal. But at the end of the day, they couldn't make me swallow the food. You know, it was it was up to me to do it. And so they were watching their child waste away and become this complete shell of herself. Um, and so I think that's 
probably the most difficult part of my whole journey when when you know the the food and the obsession around food um mm. became really prevalent and how bad did that get in the end it got bad it got really bad so um i yeah as i said i completely lost myself um i became incredibly isolated um didn't want to be around people i'd always been a real social butterfly avoided people at all costs um wasn't able to interact with humans on like a <laughs> a, a normal basis i was very um anxious and um afraid and um I got to the point where um I was admitted to hospital Starship Children's Hospital up in Auckland here and the children hospital um deemed what they call medically unstable so my bloods were all up the wop my my heart rate my blood pressure all that sort of stuff was not um where it should be um and so began my my journey to where I am now I guess um I kind of pinpoint that moment as as the beginning of my recovery and I just want to make it really clear that you know you don't have to end up in hospital to be worthy and deserving of recovery um, and you don't have to get to the point of needing hospital to be deemed sick enough I think there's this really kind of um, uh, common misconception that if you don't end up in hospital you're not sick enough and that's not the case at all in my experience I, I was admitted to hospital um, but everyone's journey is still completely valid and, and everyone's experience is, is valid regardless of where they are or where they end up in their journey um, but I spent yeah, a lot of time in hospital over the years. That's a really valid point that you're making because you know I, I've personally suffered from anxiety and depression and yet I had kind of high functioning depression. Yeah. So I could go and do my work and come home mm-hmm. and everyone thought that I was okay, but actually I'd done it despite just feeling the worst of the worst, yeah. you know, and, but just figuring out how to do the one foot in front of the other to make it look like I was okay. Yeah, completely. And one of the reasons that I did that was because I wasn't as bad as those people who can't get mm-hmm. out of bed. You know, I don't mm-hmm. really have depression mm-hmm. because X, Y, Z. And so yeah. when when we see the you know the the bottom of the cliff situation mm-hmm. as the bar in which we have to reach before we can you know say actually I'm I'm struggling here yeah then we just don't allow ourselves to admit things completely and it's so damaging and so dangerous and I think you know and and unfortunately I think the way things are um even within the systems at the moment and and the lack of resources that often you're told to come back when you're sicker you know you're not necessarily given those words but we hear all the time you know um of people going to ask for help but they're not meeting the criteria or they they're still able to go to work and function so again they're not deemed sick enough and I think that's the most invalidating thing when you are completely struggling with your mind or, or whatever it may be to be told that you know, it, it's not enough. Um, I think it's really damaging. But yeah, I, I think, especially in the world of eating disorders, there's this um, dangerous, uh, I mean, I think stereotypes play into it, but um, this misconception that you have to look like you have an eating disorder to have an eating disorder, and that's not the case at all. You can be any size, shape, weight to be really, really um, severely unwell with an eating disorder. And um I just really want to encourage people that regardless of where they are in their journey, that they do try and access help or they reach out for help because early intervention is key. Um, You know, get the help the moment you feel like you need it and really don't compare your trauma or your experience to anyone else's because it's all relative and we're all important as individuals. So it's really important that we um, focus on our own journeys and access the help and support we need. Yeah. So, I mean, how did you find a way through something like that? 
Yeah, so I think for me, um, my first hospital admission was um, 12 weeks and then I was discharged and to my luck, my appendix decided to burst and um, due to, you know, that surgery, my end disorder decided to grip on a little bit tighter and use that as an excuse to, um, I guess, engage in end disorder behaviours. And so I was admitted back into hospital and then following that had two further admissions to the Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Unit at Starship. Um, my OCD became really bad again. Um, I mean, it was bad the whole time, but it really, it really, um, I guess when I was going through or, or beginning the recovery through, you know, my eating disorder or recovering from my eating disorder, that was really anxiety provoking. And so my OCD was like, okay, sweet, let's use these, these behaviors to try and help your anxiety again, which we know now is completely false and does not work. Um, but in terms of how I got through it, um, I had a lot of support around me. I felt incredibly supported, not only by my friends, but by my family. Um, I had a, um, probably more so mum than dad. And I mean, dad was amazing, but mum really advocated for me and, and pushed for the care that I needed and deserved. And I'm really grateful for that. She wasn't willing to, I guess, let these professionals back off. Um, and she may have sound like a broken record, but she made it very clear that this is what her daughter needed and we weren't going to stop talking about it until we got it in terms of, you know, more support and a and a greater supportive team or whatever it may have been. Um, I think I always, um, deep down, whether I showed it or not, always wanted to get better. Um, I, I wasn't living, I was merely surviving. And I think I often had moments of feeling complete sadness for the person I'd lost. Um, I almost, almost like I was grieving myself because I no longer was myself. And so I think throughout my journey, I always held on to my future goals and and my future plans as a way to stay motivated. Um, Jazz, who I who I work with, she often talks about you know in order to fight, you need to know what you're fighting for. And so for me, having really clear goals and ambitions and things to I guess fight for was incredibly crucial. I think goal setting was probably. Um, in my experience, the most, I guess, prominent recovery tool that I used. Um, I also found journaling really helpful. And it's something I love to share with people because, you know, a book, a piece of paper doesn't judge you. I felt like I could often just get my thoughts out on paper and, and by getting them out on paper, they were out of my mind. Um, but I mean, I can't talk about, you know, recovering without talking about the fact that I was in a very privileged position that my parents could afford to send me to private care. So I had very intense treatment privately. Um, I also, uh, you know, was very engaged in the public system. Um, I, I feel very fortunate and lucky to have had this complete wraparound support. Um, but it's also fair to say that I worked bloody hard for it. I, I, you know, I often share with people that, you know, fighting an eating disorder is not a choice, but there is an element of choice within recovery. You know, your psychiatrist, your psychologist, your your mum, your dad, your friend can tell you what you need to do. But at the end of the day, it's up to you to, to put that food in your mouth or to not engage in those behaviours or to turn up to your appointments. You know, you have to choose to do that. And it's one of the most difficult things I've ever done. But it's incredibly worth it to be where I am now. Um, and had you told younger Jen that there was ever a chance of her getting better, she would not have believed you because my mind was consumed by these thoughts and these behaviors and these beliefs. But it's so possible because I'm living proof of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you talking about, you know, grieving, losing yourself, because obviously you've become yourself, you know, yeah. and yeah. to the point where, you know, unless you would tell someone this, 
this that this was what your past was like if someone meets you they're not going to expect that that's what your past is like completely um and I guess that also highlights the fact that you just never know what someone's story is Oh, completely. And I think from my own experience, I walk down the street differently now. You know, when I see people out and about, I I have these moments of, you know, questioning what's going on in their life because you have no idea. You have no idea. And especially when it comes to mental health or, or mental illness, you often can't see it. And I think um, throughout my own journey and when I got to the place of, I guess, sharing my battle um, openly and publicly, I was met with a lot of other people that are going through their own journeys. These are people that I went to school with. These are family. These are friends. And I had no idea they were struggling. And it was just another reminder that, you know, everyone faces your own battles and that it's always important to be super kind to people because, again, you never know what people are going through. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had very similar experience when I used to be a pastor. I talked about my experience with depression, with anxiety, um, and that actually, you know, life's not all rosy. And the number of people that came up to me afterwards, because particularly in a church setting, not only are they like everyone else who, you know, is trying to fit into society and keep their issues to themselves, but then there's this pressure that actually they're supposed to be you know, healed because they're Christian, you know, they're supposed to be better than this. The, you know, there's all of that right. as well. And so, so stand, having me stand up at the front and say, you know, well, this is what I'm going through. And I, just the number of people that came and said, oh, me too, you know, and, and even it's some crazy, people say, eh? some people came and said, I'm going to book a doctor's appointment, you know, because yeah. they, they yeah. hadn't ever allowed themselves to do that. But hearing someone else's story gave them permission to do that. Oh, yeah. 100% agree. I mean, that's what we often talk about with um, with Voices of Hope and what I learned throughout my own journey is that when someone shares their story, it allows other people to feel safe to do the same. And it's such a powerful thing to be able to, I guess, give that to someone or be that for someone. Yeah. Do you struggle when people use the term OCD in the way that it's used publicly? Because, I mean, even I, I've used it in a way yeah. that means I like things orderly. Completely, completely. No, I, I hear what you're saying. There's um, there's a lot of people that will use um, the term, like you're saying, like, oh, I'm OCD, or I like to have, you know, my room really clean, so I'm so OCD. And I think I go through stages. I think um, where I am in my journey now, um, I, I'm so well and so understanding that it comes, you know, comments like that come from a piece or a place of complete lack of understanding and so I guess I try and use it as a an education point um but then in my role as I guess an advocate and as someone that's been through my own battle and still feels so um much compassion for my younger self it does frustrate me I think um you know terms like I'm so OCD uh it does many things but something that I think it um it really does is it invalidates the experience for someone that that is going through that journey. Um, you know, my OCD nearly killed me. It completely consumed my life. It, it nearly, you know, was a difference between me being here today and, and not being here. So when it's chucked around so flippantly, if that's the right word, um, it just makes my experience um, seem really uh, minimized, if you get what I'm saying. Um, and so I think, you know, it's interesting. I've had discussions with people um, and other people um who are fighting or for OCD and um everyone's kind of experience of that saying is different but I think overall it does it does frustrate me because it's 
it's much bigger than an adjective and you don't walk around being like, oh, I'm so eating disorder. I'm so cancer. I'm so this, I'm so that. And it comes into the fact that why are we treating mental illness and mental health differently um, than, than, you know, yeah, physical health or whatever it may be. Yeah. And and I guess there's that misunderstanding that actually people going through OCD aren't just people who like things orderly. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. That there's so much more going on within their mind than that yeah completely and so I think the terms like you know I'm so OCD um it just feeds into the stereotype of of what people think OCD is and it's so much greater than that I think when people think of OCD they often think of you know someone who's very clean or tidy or organized or um you know has a has a a fear of germs or contamination and yes perhaps that's the case for for some people and some people's experiences um, and those experiences are incredibly valid but it's much deeper than that and it's much broader than that and by saying I'm OCD because you like your room tidy it does just completely invalidate the experience of someone who day in and day out fights with this this incredibly um, difficult battle. Yeah so at what point do you feel like you started getting your life back together? So I, um, during my, during my battle, I had to withdraw from school. Um, school was very anxiety provoking for me. It wasn't helping me with my, my recovery. It was becoming a big distraction and something that was just making things worse for me in my own um, situation. And so, um, when I was admitted to hospital, I ended up, um, starting correspondence and so it was like a home school and for two years I went to a health school called Northern Health School I'd go in there on a Tuesday and Thursday and do my work there um and so yeah I I didn't go to mainstream high school for years 11 and 12 um and it was towards the end of year 12 where I was in a place where I was um not only physically but um psychologically Um, a lot healthier than I had been, you know, the years prior. Um, And so I started going back to school part-time and um, in year 13, I was back at school um, for the first half of the year part-time and then went back full-time for my last um, two terms. And I think, you know, that was a big step in the right direction for me because I was engaging in, in, um, in school, number one, um, in education, I started going to, you know, birthday parties with friends and going out for dinner with friends. And I felt like I was somewhat getting my, my life back, which was really, um, awesome. Um, when I talk about, I guess, and you, I can't really put a timestamp on when I consider myself recovered as such, but, um, I moved to um, Los Angeles to go to drama school in 2014. And by that point I was very, very well, um, to the point that I was well enough and safe enough and free enough to be able to move across the country, keep myself alive and not just survive, but thrive. Um, and, and, you know, not take any of that baggage of my past with me and just go and really enjoy those, those two years. And so that's kind of the moment, um, that I look at it. I'm like, wow, I was, I was incredibly well by that point. Um, and I guess from there, it's only been, it's only been up. Um, I think the word recovered is something that I, I mean, I, instead of talking about recovered, I like to talk about being very, very well. I think um, my personal 
um, belief with the word recovered, although it's incredibly important, it paints this picture that, you know, one day you're recovered and then one day you're not. It's very black and white. And I think recovery looks different for everyone. And so for me, when I talk about my recovered or my very well life, it's the ability to um, be spontaneous, to go out and have meals with friends that are unplanned or to be able to socialize without anxiety, uh, to be able to engage in life and actually enjoy it, to not be obsessed with with food or have constant thoughts in my mind. Um, so I kind of look at, at recovered as, I guess, a, a broader term of what it means to me. Um, and in terms of, I guess, the food and the um, eating disorder side of things, I'm very, very well. Um, anxiety is still something that I, I navigate. Um, but I feel very, very lucky to have this wellness toolbox and all these skills in place that if I notice myself feeling um, anxious or, or worried about something, I'm able to notice that really quickly and I guess um, engage in really positive um, coping mechanisms to, to help myself through that. Um, so I feel like I have this wealth of knowledge and this, this whole toolbox that I've gathered throughout my journey, which I'm really grateful to have because if I had not gone through what I went through, perhaps I wouldn't have these skills that I do have today. Yeah, yeah I, I like that language around wellness. Episode five, I think it is, um, yeah. I had Julia Grace who talked about this continuum of wellness yeah. and, and how that's far different from am I healthy or unhealthy? You know, yep. like it's, it's not, there's not a line completely. that you can cross over that's yes, I am. No, I'm not, you know, right. I completely hear what you're saying. And I think the way that I look at it, like every day, and I think as humans, every day we evolve. And like, I feel like even though I'm incredibly well and, and, you know, my life now is polar opposite to what it was when I was in the deep throes of my battle. But, you know, as a human being, I think I'm continuing continuing That's not a Con word. Continuously <laughs> getting better and, and getting, um, more comfortable in the person I am yeah yeah and I think too like when you're talking about the word recovered yes when you think you've got there and then life doesn't go to plan yeah you can feel like a real failure can't you oh completely because you think that you've recovered and then you've you should be at this level now yeah and then suddenly you're not yeah whereas if you realize that actually your life is a is this continuum of wellness and yeah. there's going to be times where you are more well than other times a hundred percent but our, our, you know, the the ideal is to keep trying to get a little bit more well than we currently are. I completely agree. And it was a conversation. I think I had this with Jazz a little while ago about, um, and I actually did a post about it recently about being authentically me. But I felt this this pressure to be perfect and to be completely well and on top of things every minute of every day because I'm a mental health advocate and then I was like hey Jen yes you're a mental health advocate but you're also a human being and the thing is that mental health is on the scale and you're gonna have days where you wake up and you feel blah and that is okay and you don't need to hide that and pretend that life is rosy because that's not helping anyone. Um, so yeah, I completely, I completely see this continuum. And I really like to preach a message that um, you know, my life now you can't even compare it to what it was. I am so well and so healthy and I'm thriving and that's possible for everyone. I like to believe that. Yeah, awesome. So how did Voices of Hope come about? Voices of Hope, my little baby. Um, so Voices of Hope started um, originally in 2014. I was going to um, drama school in the States. And when I was there, uh, a girl had gone to school in Timaru. She'd done an exchange in Timaru of all places. And in her class was a girl called Jazz. And so I was in the States and she's like, oh, I know another Kiwi. You should meet my friend Jazz. And so Jazz and I were connected on Facebook because 
we had the mutual connection that we were both New Zealanders and that was a big deal in America. Um, and when I came back from the States, um, Jazz and I had been talking for a while um, over Facebook um, and we'd had a few Skypes and Zooms and we just seemed to get on really well. Um, I'm not preaching like stranger danger, don't talk to anyone online, but we um, yeah, we, we did have a mutual friend. You, we, you were introduced. Yeah, yeah. She, she's real. I'm real. Yeah. Um, and then one day Jazz posted a Facebook status um saying that she'd lost a friend to suicide and I saw that and I don't know there was just something within me that you know whether it was where I was at in my journey or whether it was the moment I saw it and I was feeling vulnerable I don't know what it was but I sent her a message and I said hey look I'm, I'm really sorry to hear this um this is this is awful and and I empathize with you and I'm so sick of hearing stories like this you know this this needs to something needs to be done and I feel like we can do something about this and so Jazz and I continued talking over Facebook she shared a lot of her journey with me um and pretty quickly I I realized or we realized that we had a lot in common and we had our own experiences um and also our same passions I was at drama school she'd always been interested in the film and television industry so fast forward a little while um 2014 we launched um Voices of Hope, and um, we were too young. I think we were eighteen at the time. Um, year old girls. We we didn't really um, have the structure or the support or the understanding of of the can of worms we were opening up. Um, and we very quickly learnt that um, there was a lot of need for it, but we weren't quite in the right place to be that or to fill that gap. Um, and so uh, a magnitude of things happen. If you've seen Jessica's Tree, um, Jazz's film, um, Jess um, reached out to Voices of Hope. Her and Jazz became very close. And then um, tragically, Jess lost her life um, to suicide. And Jazz went through her own journey after that. Anyway, long story short, we had to pull Voices of Hope down. It wasn't the right time, the right place. But we had this um, desire to to bring it back when we were both feeling um more well in ourselves and that we had more structure and support to do so. So um, without Jazz telling me, she applied for a grant um, through Jetstar in 2000, I think it was December 2016, and we ended up winning the grant. Um, And she told me that we'd won the grant and we're like, hey, look, this is a great opportunity to try and relaunch. This was three years later. We were very much more well in ourselves. Um, We knew what we needed to really make this, I guess, thrive and so we built um somewhat of a support network around us we really um you know looked into the structure and support that we needed and we relaunched voices of hope um in 2017 um and it's really just been up from there um voices of hope exists to be um uh our mission is to create an influence change whilst providing hope through the lived experience. So we're really big believers that the lived experience voice is an incredibly powerful tool to educate, but also to help others feel less alone in their fight. So through our content, whether that be video, um, you know, visual, audio, written, we just hope that our content um, allows others to know that they're not alone and empowers others to keep on fighting. So long story short, Voices of Hope came into existence as something that we wish we had had when we were unwell. There was nowhere for us to turn to, to feel hope and inspiration and I guess a connectedness. Um, And so we really wanted to be that place for people. Yeah. And so what, what sorts of things do you do as Voices of Hope? 
So we've always, and the way we started was that we started with our um, our friends. We sat them down and we interviewed them about their own journeys with their mental health. Um, and at the beginning, it was quite a broad spectrum of, of the stories and the things that we were sharing. Um, but over the years, we've become... I guess, more specific to what we do. And so a lot of the work we do is around campaigns, um, you know, whether we're focusing on a diagnosis or we're focusing on a issue, for example, you know, it may be loneliness or it may be, you know, mental health within sports or it may be, you know, uh, resilience through COVID-19, whatever it may be. We pick these topics and these themes and these, I guess, issues um, and really um, focus on them and create content around them as well as doing lived experience interviews. So we sit down with people that have faced their own battles with mental illness um, and we talk to them about their journey. Uh, We give context to where they've been, but focus a lot more on how they got to where they are now, the skills, the tools, the support they use, because at the end of the day, our hope is that people watch this content and they feel empowered to go and access the support they need or they are given you know new tools and skills that they can try and use themselves so um it's all lived experience you know our, our team myself and jazz um you know the people that work for us and support us they all have a, all have a real passion for um for storytelling and and for having these really deep and vulnerable conversations and as we talked about before you know we've really learned that when someone shares their story it allows others to feel safe to do the same it opens up doors for people to to recognize within themselves that they need help um, but also hopefully for some of the people that watch our content to to prioritise checking in on their friends too. Yeah, I love that that idea that um, the lived experience can be that voice of hope for someone else. And again, you know, I wish someone had been more open about the things that I was going through yeah. and I could go, hey, that sounds like me. Um, yeah. But the other thing I really love about what you're saying is, you know, you're, you're big on actually you need to fight this. Yeah. But actually, you fighting this doesn't mean doing it on your own. A hundred percent. You know that, yeah. that actually, and actually, that's just for most people, that's not going to work. No. You know, fighting it on your own is actually not helpful. Yeah, I completely. I love quotes, and there's a quote I saw the other day, and it said something along the lines of "You carry a load alone, but a burden together." And I think you know we we want to create or we have created which is just the best thing in the world a community that uplifts and inspires each other um and feels connected and and like they're not the only one in the world that's going through what they're going through and jazz and I often talk about same as what you've just said which I I love to hear had we had something like voices of hope when we were really in the depths of our own battles it would have been life-changing and so to be able to be that for other people is just the the best thing in the world I love that some of your, well, most of your campaigns are actually just really simple things as well. So like the one I alluded to right at the start, that how are you really, Yeah. you know, just having a campaign that's encouraging people to ask how are you really is actually really countercultural. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, I, I even find I walk down the road, I see a stranger's passing and I'm like, how you doing? Like that's my hello. It's your initial sort of like, hello, how are you? I'm completely the same. And I still, even though we've run this campaign, I still catch myself doing it. And um, I think we've just been kind of um, conditioned to, you know, be like, hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks too. And I guess the point around this, how are you really campaign was to encourage those deeper conversations and, and, you know, dig a little deeper and, and ask people, you know, how they truly are. Because I think, you know, conversations and having these conversations is such an important thing to do. Um, it's a difficult thing to do, but it's an important thing to do. So I guess, yeah, our hope with this campaign was that it 
that it could um, open up some some opportunities for people to share how they're truly feeling. What are some memorable moments for you with Voices of Hope? Memorable moments. So there's, a, there's a, I guess there's the physical moments and then um, how would I describe this? And then the moments that I guess we really, really cherish. So in terms of cher- the moments that we cherish, um, you know, Jazz and I will often talk about that the highlight of this work is the messages we receive from people. You know, the comments like, you've just saved my life. Thank you for helping me feel less alone. You've encouraged me to reach out for help. Like nothing will ever beat those sort of messages. That's the the top of the top. Um, in terms of, you know, physical moments or I guess experiences that we've had through our journey, um, we had the privilege of um, sitting down and having coffee with Prince Harry and... Um, Megan Markle, um, which was awesome, and sharing the work we do um, at Voices of Hope. Um, we've had the opportunity to uh, travel the world to America, to Kenya, to Bali, to Australia um, through Voices of Hope and collaborate with our other organizations and other groups of people, um, you know, in person events, meeting people, um, you know, different media opportunities. There's been some really, really massive highlights. Um, Jazz and I wrote a book together um and that was such a cool experience because it was us collaborating and sharing the tools and the skills we use throughout our own journey um and being able to share that with the world is such a privilege so there's there's I mean, there's so many moments along the way that I just pinch myself and I'm like, how lucky am I? But at the end of the day, like I said, it all comes back to our why and our purpose. And that's, you know, the people that we are supporting and the messages we receive is what keeps us going. Yeah. Yeah. Like you say, you could have all those amazing other moments. Yeah. And if if the individual lives weren't being touched, Completely. it's all kind of for nothing, isn't it? Completely um, agree. I love the the book that you guys put out. Um, I actually, I actually got it out a couple of days ago. Uh, My daughter and I were talking about feelings and emotions and, um, you know, navigating the, the tricky stage of life where she's slowly moving from primary school kid to older than that. Completely. And and all the emotions that go with that. And, and me as a parent struggling with dealing with that while, while also having my own, you know, things that I struggle with. And so I pulled this thing out and what, what I really liked was that actually this, I'm a 41 year old male, she's a 10 year old girl and both of yep. us could see value in like some of the questions that were in there or some of the, some awesome. of the pages. Yeah. And, and so like, it's just so relatable and you know, it's, well, here's a bunch of tools. They're not yep. all going to work for you, but completely. Yeah. You know, some of them might. And that's what we've said, you know, people have asked us what sort of age ranges are suitable for. And we had a mum that bought it for a five-year-old. And, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that whether you're five or you're 65, um, there there are different, you know, it might just be the colouring in pages that the five-year-old used. And that's fine too. But there are different aspects of the book that, you know, you can draw on. And like you said, question prompts or question starters that you can use with your child. And I think that's um, that's been quite a common thing we've heard from parents is that they've used it to help. I guess open up these conversations and, and ask these questions to their their loved one, their, their child. Um, so we're really proud of what we created, and we love hearing about um, yeah people like yourself that have found it really helpful. You've also got 
uh, an app that you've you've been part of uh, to do with eating disorders and stuff. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, back in, when was it, February last year, um, I launched an app resource called Love Your Kite with an amazing lady called Hannah. Um, And Love Your Kite is an app resource to support people through their eating disorder recovery journey. Um, It's full of 30 plus weeks of activities. Um, And the way it works is that every single day you get given one activity and only one, which can be incredibly frustrating if you want to rush through them. You can't, but it gives you the opportunity to really focus on that one activity at hand. And um, these are full of things that I use throughout my own journey, um, different skill, skills and tools that people have shared with me. Um, and although the app itself is not clinical, um, it has, you know, clinical oversight. We've had uh, specialists, you know, check the content and make sure it's safe. But it's around activities such as, um, you know, doing a social media cleanse. So removing people from your social media that don't make you feel good about yourself. There's activities such as, um, you know, goal setting and dreaming and finding your purpose and finding your passion. And so although, yes, it's targeted towards people with an eating disorder, there's content in there that could be relative or helpful to anybody in life. And, you know, there's there's 30 different modules from things like social media to finding a passion and purpose to, um, you know, uh, how to open up to your friends and family, how to have conversations, how to um, go shopping, because things like that can be really difficult when you're struggling with an eating disorder, um, you know, how to try on clothes and, and not um, be triggered. Um, so it's, yeah, it's full of this, it's long story short, it's this portal of these incredible tools and information that you can access from your phone, from wherever you are. And we had someone this morning download the app from Malta. I don't even know where Malta is, but I'm like, we have like we have like 1,500 users from literally all over the world, and it just blows my mind. And um, that app has so much potential. And so really, I guess, getting that into the right hands and, and making as many people aware of it as possible is definitely another focus for me. Where to from here for Jen Mora? Oh, it's a great question. So um, when we look at Voices of Hope, um, we're in a really exciting growth phase. We want to grow our team. We want to grow, um, you know, our campaigns. We want to be doing them more consistently. Um, we have lots of hopes and dreams um, for for the future when it comes to Voices of Hope and where we want it to go. I guess we've found what we love doing around the campaigns and the storytelling, but we just want to do it on an even bigger level. I think, um, you know, COVID and lockdowns gave us this incredible opportunity to open up Voices of Hope, not just to New Zealand, but to the rest of the world. Um, and so, you know, really um, engaging in that and, and keeping our conversation um conversations I guess broad and and um, relative to people wherever they are because our content can be accessed from wherever you are because it's predominantly online um in terms of my personal um I guess direction um I have a huge passion for the eating disorder space if that's what you want to call it there's a lot of work that needs to be done there um I've recently been appointed the lived experience voice or a lived experience voice um on the external eating disorder advisory board um and I just want to keep pushing for change and advocating for people in that space because it's a space that needs a heck of a lot more resource and a lot of love and a lot of work um and also I've got a goal or a dream to write a book so I want to write a book myself um hopefully in the near future um and yeah I I guess when we look at you know my involvement in Voices of Hope um I'd love to get Voices to Voices of Hope to a point where you know 
Um, I don't want to say it can function without me, but I'd love to be able to go and, you know, do a bit of traveling and still be involved in Voices of Hope. But I I guess to be able to get to the organization to a place where it can function without me needing to be um, involved every second of every day would be an amazing accomplishment because it would give me some freedom to go and explore different opportunities. Um, However, in saying that, I want to make it very clear before people freak out, I'm not going anywhere (laughs) and Voices of Hope is not going anywhere. But I guess just with that growth side of thing, um, Voices of Hope has been our baby from the beginning and sometimes it's hard to pass the reins or hand over responsibility to other people, but we need to do that because, um, you know, we need that more support and we need to grow our team. And so it's about sustainability, isn't it? That that, that if, if you just hold on to it, it's never going to grow. Yeah, completely. We need to, we need to yeah continue to make Voices of Hope sustainable um, through the next few years and beyond. So yeah, there's a lot of things I'm looking forward to. Um, but someone asked me recently, you know, how long are you going to keep sharing your story for? And I'm like, well, I don't plan on ever stopping because if it can help one person feel less alone in their fight, then it's incredibly worth it. So this is not the last you'll hear from me. I'm not going to stop. And then hopefully this year, which you're going to be involved in, we can actually have our in-person events. Yeah. So that'll yeah. be awesome too. I love the passion that you talk with. You know, I can tell that not only is this a lived experience of yours, but actually you just see so much hope for people. I do. I do. And anything I can do to to share, you know, I, I often talk about how I didn't go through that crappy time for no reason. Like I need to use what I went through to help other people because it makes it worth it. And when people ask me, would I change what I went through? I say no, because it, it's given me my passion and my purpose. Like I feel so grateful and lucky and, you know, proud of my younger self for fighting so hard to get to wake up each day and be excited about life and to, um, you know, be making a difference in this world. There's nothing better than that. Oh, thank you so much for giving your time to talk to us. Thank you for being prepared to share your experiences so that other people can just feel a little bit less overwhelmed by their own. And uh, thank you for what you're doing to help to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Thank you so much for having me. It's always, like I said, such an honor to share my story. And I've got a lot of respect for you and we're very grateful for you and and your support. So um, yeah, thank you for holding the space and opening up this conversation. And I hope that anyone that listened to this um, feels inspired and encouraged to keep on going. Hello, hello heaven. Will I hear I love the kaupapa, the heart of Voices of Hope. There are a number of organisations working in mental health support from a medical and social work perspective, and they are needed. But I love this idea of survivors sharing their stories and inspiring hope in others. And actually, Bex and I love what they do so much that we've made Voices of Hope one of two organisations who receive a percentage of every sale that we make through our business, Sugarlips. And I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. I'm super grateful that Jen felt comfortable to share some of her personal journey with us. For me, one of the biggest reminders from her story is that even in the most challenging times, there's always hope. Jen, thank you for sharing your story, your vulnerabilities and your hope with us today. Here is a blessing for you. Jen. May your relationships continue to grow and flourish. Relationships that were at one point too hard to maintain, but then now form a bedrock on which you can stand thriving and full of joy. 
May your upcoming marriage be one that blossoms and grows, surprising you, igniting you, and may you find love in you beyond what you have ever known. Just as you can pinpoint moments that flicked a switch for you in an unhealthy way, may you find yourself over and over again pinpointing moments that are doing the reverse, bringing life and love in all its glorious goodness. May voices of hope flourish and grow beyond your wildest dreams as you tell over and over again stories of life, of light, of hope. May the messages from those you have helped never stop coming, filling you up and spurring you on, but may you also know that you have helped countless more people than this. And may you remember that your work is inspiring and your story is powerful because you are not superhuman, that no one expects you to be, that while you can offer what you can offer, you can't rescue people from their battles, and that sometimes, for others and for you, life is actually just hard. And that's okay. And when you find yourself in those hard moments, may you remember the many voices around you, including your own, calling you to hope once again. And lastly, may you know you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia. Join me next time when I talk to Craig Watson, the founder of Diverse Church, a network for LGBTQ plus Christians here in Aotearoa. We talk about his time working with youth in prison, his project management journey, including working for the Rugby World Cup here in New Zealand and for the London Olympics. And Craig also shares his journey of wrestling with same-sex attraction while growing up in the church and what it's like to be gay and Christian in New Zealand. It's another vulnerable and love-filled corridor. Until then, me inoi tato. E tō mātau matua i te rangi Kia tapu tō ingoa Kia tau mai tō rangatira tanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Homai kia mātau ai nei E taroma mātau mō tēnei rā Muro mātau hara Me mātou hoki e muru nei I o te hunga e harana kia mātou Aua hoki mātou e kawea Kia whakawaia E ngari whakorangia mātou I te kino 